Welcome, friends, people for peace, pods of consciousness, planetary citizens, wherever you happen to be today, listening to local news and social artistry right here on KOPN.org, your community radio station out of Columbia, Missouri, 89.5 FM if you're on the dial. And this show, uh, by the way, I'm the host, Dick Dalton. Uh, this show is... Uh, a way to talk to people that are building a more humane world from the inside out. Today, my guest is from Ashland, Oregon, an old friend, Trish Broersma, a certified therapeutic... Uh, certified therapeutic writing instructor. And, and then you have some certification with uh, the mental health uh, aspect of that. Well, my certification is as an equine specialist, which is uh, qualifies me to work with people in mental health and learning and in cooperation with uh, licensed psychotherapists and other practitioners, not necessarily therapists, uh, like school teachers and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And I'm also a certified MBIT coach. That's multiple brain integration techniques. Cool. So all those have to do with mental health, those, those last two. Mm -hmm. And one connection that we have is uh, a book that you've written called Writing Into Your Mythic Life. We were just talking before the interview that I had gone to uh, a weekend up in Chicago in 63 to the Ecumenical Institute. What was your connection? I got connected later, uh, just out of college, uh, newly married. My sister attended one of those weekend workshops and it changed her dramatically. So my husband and I just mostly out of curiosity to see what had happened to my sister. Uh, <laughs> it was a good thing, you know, started wearing nice clothes and got a good job and she just lit up. So we took a weekend workshop and it was really formulated to uh, transform local churches so that they would take a, a more, um, I'd say missional approach to being the church instead of just taking care of their members. And so the workshop had to do with really updating our, our theology. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, we weren't involved in churches at that time at all. Both my husband and I had been grown up in families who attended church, but it, it wasn't a super important part of our lives. Mm -hmm. And we had frankly felt like it had um, passed its time. There were so many other more effective things going on in the world. But this weekend workshop really impressed us, you know, that they were truly looking at the global needs of our world mm -hmm. and asking uh, what can we do to respond mm -hmm. to the suffering of the world. And it had to do with the work in local, the local ghetto communities in Chicago where they were raising up local leadership Mm -hmm. and training them to attend to their community's needs. And they really had some really powerful intellectual methods that they blended with this uh, in-depth teaching uh, that was primarily Christian, but it was really ecumenical. And as over the years, it became more visibly ecumenical mm -hmm. of, with other traditions that were non-Christian. We ended up being on the staff of the Ecumenical Institute in the early 70s and then for five years and that took 
took us from uh, into the ghetto of Detroit. We were living in Michigan at that be, before that. Mm-hmm. I had attended the University of Michigan. My husband was from Michigan, so we we moved from Detroit to Chicago to the headquarters there in their uh, one month long academy, global academy training that was very intensive. And uh, and then we were, after six months in Chicago, we went down to San Antonio, where we actually lived for 18 years. Um, <laughs> I was going to ask you how you got to San Antonio, and that was the connection. Wow. Yes, uh, we, were, uh, we were in the San Antonio Religious House, which is, you know, uh, we worked in these uh, sort of corporate communities, uh, mm-hmm. uh, families, and uh, did the work in the... Uh, Mexican-American community of San Antonio. But then it, it, the lifestyle of moving every two years was very stressful on our young children. Mm-hmm. And so we decided that even though we really strongly believed in the work, we moved into a neighborhood, a regular neighborhood in San Antonio, and ended up staying there You know, uh, until they were teenagers. Mm-hmm. In, in fact, our oldest had gone off to college when we moved to Ashland, Oregon. You know, During that time, Early on, we continued our work with the ICA because uh, there was a variety. They, they started demonstration projects in a really small town near there named Asherton. And I was part of the um, the opening um, gathering for a week. Anyway, we would go and gather several hundred people to do essentially a town meeting and create a plan for action that was built by those people. And we provided the intellectual methods, you might say, of making that possible to come up with that sort of thing in a week. And then some people went and lived there for two years to provide uh, ongoing s- sustenance to the leadership there, you know, working with the uh, community, you know, the community government and service organizations and so forth. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I was involved in all of that, uh, and I found it extremely meaningful. And yet, uh, uh, because I had, at that point, three children, three young children, I I wasn't able to do quite as much mm-hmm. uh, as, you know, I had in the past. And so I started hearing about Jean Houston and uh, ended up at her mystery school. And Yeah, she came to Houston, I think you said, and gave yes, a uh-huh, presentation. She, uh, she was doing a workshop at that time on St. Francis. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those wonderful times. I'm sure we've all had the opportunity to experience it. And whether we gave it credence or not is another matter. But St. Francis was showing up all over the place in my life for about a year. Oh. Um, I hadn't actually noticed it when I went to that workshop. Uh, but the fact is that the summer before, it had been an important anniversary for my husband and I. And we went to San Francisco uh took a trip to san francisco and stayed in the saint francis hotel and the christmas after going to gene's workshop we had a family reunion in santa fe which i didn't actually know santa fe was named after saint francis but it is and it was actually on the way home from driving home from that trip that i said to my husband oh it's really weird how saint francis just keeps showing up (laughs) you know (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, and you know it was there were a couple of other little things too and the other thing oh i know the other thing was that at our christmas meal together my mother said um uh, that she wanted to share her favorite prayer and guess what prayer it was it was the saint francis mm-hmm. prayer mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And 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 we and she uh, she always had a big statue of Saint Francis out on the front porch of our house when we were growing up. Oh so anyway, you know, I was reflecting on all these little. You know, within a few weeks after that, I was in mystery school, and we started paying attention to things like that in a yeah. serious way. <laughs> and so there I was, and uh, yeah, as you mentioned, my work is with work with horses, and so I should I should sort of trace that thread because. You know, I I was just kind of a horse crazy girl, like a lot of people. And my parents couldn't afford to get me a a horse. And uh, so I just, I I grew up in Oklahoma City. And so several of my friends had horses. But I mean, I chose my friends according to who had a horse. (laughs) Let me just (laughs) be clear about that. It it wasn't that hard to be around horses in Oklahoma City at that time. When I was 14, my uh, grandmother passed away and she left my parents just a small amount of money, but it was enough that they said they could buy me a $150 horse and pay the $30 a month to take Mm -hmm. care of it. And I was just on cloud nine. It was just like, you know, a a dream come true. I'd been holding it and holding Mm -hmm. onto it for all those years until then. And, but I still saw it as a, a hobby you know, uh, it's something that I really liked, but I was ambitious in school to do something more substantial than, I mean, I thought it might be fun to be a rancher, but, you know, by the time I was a teenager, it was more like, okay, I think I want to be a doctor. Mm. And uh, so that carried me through undergraduate school at the University of Michigan. And I actually wanted to go to medical school there. At U of M, I, I got all my pre-med requirements, but I also loved literature. So I actually had a major in, so anyway, I decided not to go to medical school. And instead I went to graduate school in English language and literature. Mm-hmm. And so all of this ties in with what I do now in the sense that um, during that time I met my husband in school and then we got married a couple of weeks after graduate school. Mm-hmm. And so there is no way I was going to do anything with horses and you know, we were just kind of getting settled in Michigan. He was teaching at a junior college there, community college, and teaching English. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was good. You know, we were had our first child. And then when he was, when Matthew, who was about a year old, was when we got introduced to uh, the Ecumenical Institute. Oh, that and uh, yeah, and so um, that was when we were in Michigan. And so you know, so then we had uh, two more children. And so here we are in San Antonio. And uh, I'm like, uh, I'd started working as a freelance graphic designer. And and we're there uh, until 1993, when we moved here. And so during that time, you know, when I had the third child, she was about two years old. I said, I want to get back into horses. And so I started, you know, working with a local trainer, helping him. And just, you know, it'd been 10 years. I hadn't done anything. And, but I just had this, you know, this inner passion for it that I just felt was important for me to, to keep in touch with. Uh, you know, and it ties in with St. Francis' yeah. oh. connection with animals. And and, um, and ends up tying into pre-med and, and so yeah. on. It ends up that way, which I had no idea it would. Because, uh, you know, after, I don't know, about three or four years of teaching, riding and um uh, training horses and i had you know a bunch of kids i'd take to horse shows 
there locally. I really had the biggest youth uh, writing program in San Antonio. Trish, before we go into that next phase, yeah, uh, I want to reintroduce you to okay. our listening audience uh, and welcome you folks listening today, uh, whether you're listening to the show on the Monday that we're broadcasting, or maybe you're listening to the podcast at some time later. Um, we're glad you're with us. Uh, I'm Dick Dalton, the host of this uh, show, Glocal News in Social Artistry. And my guest today is uh, Patricia, or we go by Trish Broersma, uh, author of a book called Writing Into Your Mythic Life. And uh, we've just been talking about uh, the uh, lifespan from early days on up to uh, San Antonio and um, re she just is getting to reunite with the uh, horse world <laughs> that had been a part of her youth. So Trish, uh, I, I just, I knew this was coming, so I wanted to just slip in that uh, reintroduction uh, mm -hmm. because you, you've really transitioned into your career uh, at that time. Is that a mm -hmm. way to say it? Yes, well, and I was, so I was teaching riding and training horses, you know, and, but I, I always felt like something was missing, even though I loved it, mm -hmm. there was something missing. I was really busy, you know, I had family and three children, my, my husband, uh, I did graphic design in the mornings, basically, and then I'd go out to the horses at three o'clock when kids got off of school. Oh. And, you know, my kids would come along sometimes, especially my daughter, she ended up having her own horse, but you know, I had done all that work with the uh, Institute of Cultural Affairs, ICA, you know, with inner city kids and, uh, and not only just kids, but adults and just knowing what was needed. And I just knew that there was so much that horses could offer people. And, but there was no way that I was able to do that in, in the context of the horse business. Mm. You know, it was all, I mean, I, Essentially, you had to be upper middle class to afford to buy a horse, at least. Yeah. Uh, and you had to be at least middle class in order just to afford to come uh, take lessons. Yeah. You know, and so there, I knew there were all these kids in San Antonio that could just benefit so much from being with a horse, but there, I had no way of uh, no access to them mm -hmm. in any meaningful way. I mean, I, I could bring a few kids out, mm -hmm. but that was for one visit or something but you know in an ongoing way there was no way to do that and so um so during that time i ended up as, as starting a mystery school with jane houston which is where you and i met a few years later and uh and, so and you you started up on the east coast uh once you had it in right. new york yeah so you would travel fly or however you'd get up to yeah uh, fly definitely fly yeah once or, a month, yeah, nine the times weekends, a year. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And so um, I, I went to New York two years, and then uh, the third year they had one in Colorado. And okay. so I went to that one. But that was also the year that I actually uh, started working on Gene's staff. Mm -hmm. And I was a staff member after that with the um, in a variety of roles, uh, with the sound table and doing graphic design and so forth. And um, so anyway, yeah, yeah, over the years I was attending this, sometimes I would attend this school on the East Coast and the West Coast, <laughs> both, 
but but anyway, that's uh, that's here and there. Uh, except that it it did provide a foundation for expanding my growth in ways that I were that were undreamed of. Well, maybe they were dreamed of, but <laughs> I had no uh, personal history of being able to do things like that. And um, so, um, you know, here I was at mystery school, feeling like there was something missing for my work mm-hmm. and my life, and. Um, um, you know, there were, there were a few things, um, that happened in that time, you know, I, um, you know, there were some inspiring people who had done a lot with their lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were, uh, there, you know, there were all these people at mystery school who would say, well, what do you do? And I talk about, you know, the new, this new thing with computers for graphic design and, you know, um, and, um, and then horses. And so back in San Antonio, when I bring up those two topics, everybody wanted to talk about computers. But at mystery school, everybody wanted to talk about horses. <laughs> and, uh, and and they weren't even necessarily horse people, but they just understood the spiritual power mm-hmm. of horses mm-hmm. for uh, the human community. And some of them understood it in depth, and they weren't—they weren't really horse people. I mean, it's just amazing to me. And um, well, you know, so, Trish, we no. might—we might bring in um, in Jean Houston's work. She sort of like a, you get introduced right away to the four levels or depths of the psyche. Yes. And I think it's worth, uh, since your book title is Writing Into Our Mythic Life, exactly. maybe, maybe we could put that in the context of these four levels of the psyche. Yes, and... I'm happy to do that. Um, yeah. Right. The first level The first level is the um, uh, sensory mm-hmm. level, physical sensory level, mm-hmm. which has to do with our just the way we our senses uh, interact with the world, you know, and then the second level is the psychological historical which has to do with our personality patterns and our personal history stories our families our ancestry and then there's uh you know and those are two levels that i think in our western culture we're pretty familiar with mm-hmm. and um and then there's the mythic level which as as a literature major i was i was uh fascinated by that i mean i was i i was familiar with it in some ways, but Jean took it to a whole different level in the sense that looking at the mythic patterns of our own lives, mm-hmm. um, that you know, we have archetypal patterns that um, that influence us and that empower us when we become aware of them. We can take on archetypal partners mm-hmm. to help guide us through difficult passages in our lives. And uh, Carl Jung did a lot of work with that in and even knowing now there's a lot more being done. And and then, then the fourth level is the spiritual or unitive level, which has to do with um, our connection with all of life. Mm-hmm. And so um, so as we as we delved into that work and through the lens of many different cultures at mystery school and also, things like quantum physics and so forth, mm-hmm. um, you know, things started happening in my life. And I, I guess the thing that 
one of the turning points was opening up the uh, San Antonio newspaper one morning, and here was an article about a therapeutic writing program going on in San Antonio and had been, been going on for a couple of years. Mm. And I had never even heard of ther therapeutic writing. And it, it, I mean, it was just like, boing, and you talk about light bulb going off. That's what happened. <laughs> it was like, I mean, I didn't look back. I started bringing in uh, children with mild disabilities into my horseback riding program. And I started working with that, that program. And I eventually sold my horse operation to my lead trainer and I opened uh, the satellite center in San Antonio, which is still in operation hmm. all these years later, 30 some years later. And I'm to my amazement to tell you the truth, because after two years, I moved here to Ashland mm -hmm. and, um, and I, uh, I began working. I, I actually had been planning to work at a, an existing therapeutic writing program called help equestrian center. But it took us like two years to sell our house and actually get here. Mm. And by the time we got here, um, it had closed. It had been closed for a year and a half. Oh I didn't even know it. I was so preoccupied with just getting here. I didn't know that they had closed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, I got here and it was like, what? You know, because <laughs> I wanted, I didn't want to be creating a program and running it, you know, being a director and, uh, and doing everything, you know, but after a while, I realized if I was going to do this work, I was going to have to reopen Hope Equestrian. And I said, okay, I'll be the director for six months and, and then we'll bring in somebody else and I can do what I really love, which is the, the instructional part. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, well, nine years later, I was still the director. Oh. I was working like 70, 80 hours a week. And, I just finally had to retire. I had to step away from it. Mm -hmm. And, um, but I always saw that as my way of reaching out and in creating social action in, in uh, you know, being a social artist as mm -hmm. um, in, 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 in social artistry was actually something that uh, we talked about in, uh, the um ICA. In oh, fact, I didn't know that. Right. I know it's funny, but um we uh it's actually a part of our one of the things we did at, at one of the early workshops we went to with the at that time Ecumenical Institute EI. Mm -hmm. It was uh, the individual and family. We were asked to write a mission statement for our family. We never even thought of such a thing. It took us about eight months to write it after the workshop. I mean, it wasn't something we could just write off the top of our heads mm -hmm. because, you know, we were, we just, we just weren't that intentional about our family. It was more like we were, you know, we were just following inherited patterns, you might say, mm -hmm. um, for, and, and so we were pretty much focused on our, our family and, you know, supporting one another, but, and, and of course we had friends and, you know, we were sort of, concerned about larger affairs, but mostly we were concerned about the Vietnam War mm -hmm. and, you know, a peace protest. We went to Washington uh, one time when I was, I remember I was seven months pregnant mm -hmm. at a march mm -hmm. in D.C. and, you know, that kind of thing. But, you know, writing a mission statement. So it what it turned out to be was 
the Broersma family serves the world as movement builders, social artists in the new family. So it was right. I mean, it was part of our languaging yeah. way back in the eighties. Yeah. And so it's carried forward. Um, I'd say all of those have mm -hmm. carried forward and sort of hammering those out in ways uh, that we ne not necessarily were clear on at that time. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, here we are back I, years later. Um, here's this um, opportunity to do therapeutic writing. I'm, we've moved to Ashland. Mm -hmm. And nine years later, um, I resigned. And so during that time, during those nine years, I had, I had been, um, we had brought a young man onto our board of directors who uh, had grown up as a rancher. And he really wanted us to work with at-risk teenagers because he was convinced that, uh, that what saved him from drugs and crime was a horse, the fact that he had a horse. Mm. And he wanted that to be offered to some of these at-risk teens mm -hmm. who um, were in drugs and in trouble with the law. Mm -hmm. And uh, I liked the idea of that because I had been doing all these creative programs in San Antonio with my more able-bodied students before I got into therapeutic writing mm -hmm. that had to do with myth and stories mm -hmm. and how, how we were, how these, how we were all living our own hero's journey. And uh, I, I just couldn't figure out a way to do that with people with disabilities. And so I, I wasn't doing it, but I thought, Hey, you know, with these at-risk teens, we could do a summer long program where they'd come like, I don't know, they come, I think they'd come uh, eight or 10 times uh, once a week for uh, three or four hours. Mm -hmm. And, and it, but it wasn't easy. First of all, it wasn't easy to get at-risk teenagers to come on a regular basis because they were from broken families. Yeah. And, and uh, so it took us about three years to finally settle on working with residential treatment centers where they could commit to bringing their kids. Oh, yeah. and, 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 you know, they could put them in a bus and bring them. Right. <laughs> you know? So, but, you know, we tried working with the boys and girls club and with the schools before that, but finally it was the residential treatment centers. Mm -hmm. and, and it was good because it was like a last resort for these kids before they had the, the choice of going there or going to uh, youth detention to oh, jail, you know? Yeah. So, um, so for them to see all the difficulties in their lives from that that lens of their mythic, the mythic proportions of it, to see uh, the the possibilities that lay dormant in those was just really uh, great. I mean, it really enhanced the work they were doing at the center with their therapy and their school and everything. They even, but even the residential treatments that are, it was like I remember the this board member coming and say, you know, I've got the funding together for it, but I just can't get them interested. They just won't give me the time of day. And I said, who have you been talking to? Let me go talk to him. <laughs> so, uh -huh. you know, I remember that first meeting I walked in and I was there and they, they sort of had this stony look on their face, you know, <laughs> oh, oh, hello. Hi. Yes. Yes. We do have an appointment. <laughs> so I started talking about it and they said, well, you know, we can't bring them. We just don't have transportation. I said, that's okay. Our volunteers will come and get them. And said, well, we can't pay for it. I said, you know what? The funding's already in the bank. It's all paid for. And uh -huh. we're like, oh, okay. So it's almost like they couldn't 
escape. <laughs> they couldn't mm -hmm. find a way to say no. Mm -hmm. But once they started, they were thrilled with it. We did it for seven years. Um, and, uh, and, and it just made such a difference. They said that the, the residents who came to our program were, were noticeably more motivated mm -hmm. than any of the others. Uh, and so, um, anyway, when I resigned from Hope Equestrian, um, I had presented that program to several national conferences, you know, because it was innovative mm -hmm. and, um, people would come up and say, you know, you should write a book about that. And I'd say, <laughs> okay, right. That's a good idea, but <laughs> I'm working like 80 hours a week, you know, and, um, but I, I thought it was a good idea, but I, you know, I was, after all, as a literature major, I should be able to write a book. Not that I ever had, of course, but anyway, um, I mean, I, I really had my doubts that I could, frankly, but anyway, here I was having resigned and I, I realized I had the time to write that book. And <laughs> so I did. Wasn't quite that simple. Maybe I just want to say that I find that when I step in a certain direction that even though I may be unsure of it, things rise up to assure me that I'm on the right track. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the story I want to say now is that it was before I had resigned from Hope, a friend had given me a birthday gift of a uh, astrology reading by Lawrence Hillman, who's the son of the famous James Hillman, mm, okay. psychologist. So anyway, I had a few astrology readings and they were kind of like interesting, but I believe there is a subtle effect that we participate in when we're born and so forth and the configuration of the planets and all that. But it just mm -hmm. wasn't a major part of my life. But anyway, Lawrence Hillman, it was life changing. Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. He said, you know, I, I don't usually give this kind of reading, but you know, you're in an important time and I need to talk to you about your North and South node. And, uh, and I'm like, okay, what's the North and South node, you know? And he said, and he said, you know, you came in, uh, in the South node and you were like a team member and you were, you know, all cooperative and all this stuff. And, and I said, yeah, I love being a member of a team. You know, I love being at, at mystery school with 150 people or, you know, at ICA working, you know, together with others and being an effective team member. Yes, you're right, Lawrence. He said, okay, well, your North node is that you are a leader. And when he said that, even as I tell you that down now, Vic, it gives me chills. And it, when he told me that, it gave me a stomachache. <laughs> I said, you've got to be wrong. I said, that is so not true. I mean, he's, you know, and, and, and I mean, here I was the director of Hope Equestrian, but I never put my name on anything. It was always about the organization and the work, you know, and, and I just thought that was right. Because it wasn't about me. It, it was about what we were doing for people, you know. And he said, no, he said, no, you, this is, this is your destiny. He says, uh, and, and the thing, and he was trying to convince me and I wasn't being convinced, but he finally <laughs> said something that, that got my attention. He said, it began, he said, you've had a taste of it already with your, with being a mother, with your three children. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay. I can see that because I loved being mother, and it, but it wasn't something I sought out initially. Our first child was kind of accidental, <laughs> uh, but I loved I loved it. So we had two more, 
And so that got my attention. He said, here, just do this. He said, just step, just do one little thing in this direction. He said, if I'm right, you will see. It, things will cascade. He said, like, just put in the newsletter that you do for Hope Equestrian Center, just put that you wrote one of the articles, because I never put my name on anything, right? So, you know, put by Trish Borsma. I said, well, I guess I could do that, you know? <laughs> and so I uh, went down to a conference down in Arizona for a week, uh, working with horses, uh, with Linda Kohana and her work. And I had gone there because uh, Linda had referenced uh, Jean uh, Houston's, no, she hadn't referenced Jean's work, but she had written a book called The Tao of Equus. And it, it talked all about the mythological threads that are associated with horses. And I just loved it. And I thought, wow, she would love Jean Houston's work. It is what it was. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, I, I decided I wanted to study with her. And uh, and she was she actually had heard about Jean and, and was a little bit familiar with her work. And I said, you know, you would. And I especially realized in that week of studying with her that for her, it was somewhat disappointing because for her, it was all about the stories, but she hadn't integrated it into personal living in mm -hmm. the, the mythic patterns like Jean had, mm -hmm. you know, with, you know, I mean, she would tell a mythic story and then she'd stop after an hour of talking about it and say, okay, let's make this our story. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, Linda hadn't done that. I said, you know, your work would really benefit from this. She said, I know it would, I know it would. It's just <laughs> hard to find the time. Right. And so it was with a little bit of disappointment and not finding quite the collegiality I had hoped uh, to help me move ahead with this book that uh, I was, we were finishing the week and I had, um, I had um, made arrangements to meet several of the people at a bookstore. So I, I got there a little early or maybe there was a misunderstanding of the time and I was wandering around the bookstore <laughs> and um just enjoying, you know, the books. And um, I was just thinking as I was wandering around the store that um, if I would just get started writing this book, I just needed to put, if you build it, they will come, that the the colleagues will come if I just start writing the book. I was trying to find the colleagues to help me write the book. Mm -hmm. And so it's just like, you know, that field of dreams, that sure. if you build it, they will come. And so I thought, you know, I should just put that up on my refrigerator when I get home. They just start writing the darn book, you know, <laughs> and uh, and see who shows up. And and so I get home and here in my stack of mail is something from the what was it? The American Writers Guild or something. And the, the leader of that group had attended mystery school. And so I somehow I had gotten on our mailing list hmm. for the first time. Right. And so this uh, this envelope, it was just a regular business envelope, but it was filled with it was quite fat. <laughs> it had lots of paper in it. And it was, um, it was about uh, a workshop they were having for, for fledgling writers. But the phrase plastered across this envelope was, if you build it, they will come. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I couldn't believe my eyes. And I said, Oh, my gosh. And so I, I didn't go to the workshop, but I took that envelope and put it up on my refrigerator. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you know what? Yeah, you know, it's just things like that, one thing after another. Yeah. Um, I've come to trust more in, in, in the wonder of what, you know, the truth of all that, and and so 
in in the ensuing years, you know, just watching for the the points of light and the coincidences right. that point away mm-hmm. has led me to what I do now, which is writing beyond working with women recovering from breast cancer treatment, ah. the after effects of it mm-hmm. through the uh, connection with horses. Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, we just see miracles all the time mm-hmm. happen in their lives. And it's, it's, um, it's very rewarding work. It's challenging, uh, uh, partly because a lot of people don't want to talk about breast cancer mm-hmm. or, or when they do, they want to talk about the cure it's just hard to face. Just about everyone knows somebody who's had breast cancer. Mm-hmm. They had no idea what that person was going through, the challenges that they faced as a result of that experience. So I've seen a huge improvement in the last 10 years, just major hospital system here. And I'm sure there's in other, you know, we're in a small area, it's, you know, rural area. Mm-hmm. So there's, I'm sure there's some of this elsewhere, but anyway, this woman's job is survivorship. That's her title. I mean, that's the title of the work she does is survivorship. Wow. And she's only been on the job for a year, but she, you know, she's a nurse and she mm-hmm. specializes in previously in um, palliative care and, and geriatrics. And so it's, she's very passionate. She works with all kinds of post-cancer survivorship was uh emerald your horse uh involved in that therapy as well no she had passed away uh, you know the last the afterword of the book is about her passing right, right. and uh so you know it was um i didn't know the year that she passed yes she, she uh well there was a uh, five or six years between her passing or maybe more, I, you know, I'd have to think through the dates just mm-hmm. offhand, but um, she was she was certainly a, a key horse in the therapeutic riding mm-hmm. phase of my work. Mm-hmm. And but when she she passed away, and then I resigned from Hope Equestrian, and and during that time, for a while, I continued the at risk team programs because I had funding for those. But then we had that recession, and the all the funding dried up for for such programs as that they all went to survival services Hmm. and so i ended up teaching uh, you know i got the book published and that took me to australia to teach and i've been to england and ireland Hmm. and other places but i wasn't doing much in the way of teaching here in the local in my local community and i really wanted to Hmm. And, and, and the other thing i had I had the opportunity to do during those years was to get into endurance riding. I don't know what that is. Well, endurance riding is a sport, uh, which mm-hmm. I had not been involved in at all. I, mm-hmm. I mean, I was dimly aware of it, but um, two of our, the volunteers at Hope Equestrian were uh, eagerly involved in it. And when I resigned, they said, Oh, Trish, you just got to come out and join us. You know, I mean, they knew I was kind of at loose ends and, and sure enough, uh, one so with the endurance riding, it's uh, something that happens on a weekend, and people will ride their horses for a minimum of thirty miles okay. uh, in a day. Mm. Uh, but the the sort of the standard is fifty miles or seventy five or hundred miles. Okay. And so you have to condition the horses several times a week, 
it's an intense sport and and julie hauled out one of her other horses and so anyway we got out there and so here's this horse and you know a couple of things happened in that very first ex- experience you know first i the trainer said well you want to hop on her and i said well actually when i look at a horse i like to see somebody else who knows the horse ride the horse first right oh, wow. so i can kind of watch and she said oh, okay no problem just yeah, I said, just here in the arena. She says, oh, well, I never ride her in the arena. I, we always go out on the trail. Well, okay. <clears throat> so she she gets on her and she's riding around, but she's not, the horse isn't collected. She's not on the bit, as you call it. I, you know, she's not really responding to the bit much. You know, and I, I, and so I say, can you do that? And she says, oh, she's not too good at that. She's better out on the trail. And I said, well, let me try. Mm-hmm. Right. So I get on her and sure enough, she's not paying attention to the bit at all. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, She's pretty much doing her own thing, you know, (laughs) and so the trainer says, you know, actually I ride her in this sort of bungee rig. She said, let me go get it. That'll help. And so, so she and Julie walk away, right? I'm on the horse. The horse freaks out. The horse starts jumping around. And I know that if I start trying to um, calm her down with a bit, she's going to rear up with me. Mm -hmm. That's what will happen. And so I'm trying to move her through and get her, you know, I'm trying to say, let's move forward. I mean, that's kind of the key. A horse can't rear her up if they're moving forward. So I'm trying to move her forward, or, you know, ha- ha- let's go around this cone here. Let's, let's go over this pole, you know, uh, just trying to get her distracted. And she's just really upset. And so they're gone like a couple of minutes, which mm. seems like a really long time <laughs> uh, when a horse is freaking out like that. And, and then all of a sudden she stops and she looks up and here they come. And so she just takes this big sigh. And I thought, wow, she's doing all that because her her two people that she knows the best were walking away, mm-hmm. you know? And I was really impressed that she had, first of all, that kind of connection with them. Mm-hmm. And also that she was so expressive about it, mm-hmm. you know? And so anyway, she was, I couldn't take ownership of her because the book was coming out that fall. And I said, I'm going to be going on a book tour. So, uh, and so the thing was, though, I, I was just, uh, I, I left out an important piece. I was just helping her condition this horse. Right. But right away, you know, and so we would ride her two or three times a week. I'd go over to Julie's place. And, but right away, Mystic would, when I'd come out, she'd come running over to me. Oh. In the field. And then when I drive away, she'd run after my car. Oh. And, uh, so after, you know, a couple of weeks, I said to Julie, I said, God, I'm falling in love with this horse. She's so sweet, you know? <laughs> and she said, well, really, I was hoping you would buy her. <laughs> and I was like, no, no, no. I don't want a horse that rears. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. And so famous last words, right? right? Because during that time, during the previous six months, I had been saying, you know, I really want a horse I can have a personal relationship with. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so here we were riding out on the Pacific Crest Trail uh, a week or so after that, that that little Julie telling me she wanted me to buy her. And, um, and we're out on the Pacific Crest Trail. We'd just gone out. We were just out maybe 30 minutes. And we were trotting along. And, and I just, you know, we just sort of melded together, you know, just that just happens sometimes, you know. And, uh, and so that, that, you know, she was trotting around real easy. And I just... I just got this really clear message. This is that horse mm. you're looking for, Trish. Oh. And I was just like, whoa, mm. you know, and 
I thought, okay, I'm going to wait until we get back and see if I still feel that way after three hours, you know, because that's how long we planned to be up. So we got back to the trailer and I told Julie, I said, you know, I really got this message that I need to buy this horse. And she was thrilled, of course. And I said, but I can't, I really can't take her, Julie, until next spring. Mm -hmm. And so anyway, we worked it out. She kept her. Um, but, you know, the next spring when I brought her in, she was horrible, Dick. I mean, she was, she was she would freak out if a, a white trailer would come into the property where I was boarding her or leave. And, and I happened to have her out. She, she would literally run away with me if I was mm -hmm. on her back oh. trying to get at that trailer. And I think, you know, either, a, a, you know, a, someone had hauled away a horse that she was attached to oh. in the past. Mm -hmm. uh, she, and she was just really extremely difficult. And, and and that's uh, because so I had three horses at the time and a friend came up from California. She said, I just love this Liberty work that I've been doing. I, I want to show you. And thank goodness she chose Mystic of my three horses. And so she turned her out in this big arena and she said, you know, the idea is that they need to have choice. And so she went out and started working with Mystic. And I knew within 30 seconds that this is what this horse needed. Wow. This horse needed to be turned loose. And she and I work it out where I don't have a halter on her. And, you know, because she's affectionate. She wants to come over. But the minute I ask her to do anything, she just, you know, <laughs> do something else, you know. And she might she might cooperate for about 30 seconds. And then she just, you know, get real bossy and difficult. And, uh, and so, um, you know, that was the beginning of what has led me into the work I do now. Mm. Okay. Because, uh, you know, turning Mystic loose like that uh, required me to get more uh, skilled in communicating with her and winning her winning her willingness to give me leadership. That's a big difference to the standard horse approach, which is uh, has more to do with dominance. Dominance, yeah. And and it's it's a huge difference. Uh, and for, for Mystic to teach me that uh, was leading the way to doing this kind of work that we do today, yeah. where the horses are allowed to interact, the horses are encouraged to interact and facilitate the interactions. They're not just there to be obedient to what we ask them to do. Mm -hmm. They are bringing in this amazing perceptiveness about things and mystic is particularly expressive uh the other horses are expressive as well but but she she is more so and it's not like i would never heard of a horse doing this but i had no idea she was one of those mm -hmm. right never never in my wildest dreams would i have thought she was one of those kind of horses mm -hmm. but i went to a conference down in arizona again wonderful uh, coincidences at Prescott College. I was going to present about the work in my book. Mm -hmm. And I sat next at the opening address to somebody I didn't know. And she's, we only talked for about 30 seconds and the, the keynote speaker was starting. And she said, well, I hope you'll come to my presentation. I said, yeah, you come to mine too. Yes. So it turned out she was talking about this experience uh, seven years before when she was dying of the effects of her breast cancer treatment. 
she was in hospice. Mm -hmm. She was on oxygen. She was in a wheelchair. Mm -hmm. She'd given away all but one of her horses, given away her dogs. She was a therapeutic riding instructor, but she was dying of this this, uh, hole in one line and damage to her heart from the radiation treatment. So when I went to her presentation, she was telling that story and she said, I had this book laying around and I had never read it, but I, I picked it up and the author of this book is somewhere here at this conference and it was my book. <laughs> and I raised my hand and I said, we've already met. <laughs> and she said that it gave her, gave her the idea that maybe the story that the doctors had given her, the medical world had given her, didn't have to be her story. Mm-hmm. And so it was just in kind of considering that, that she got a friend to help her climb up on the back of this one remaining horse mm-hmm. and turn around sitting on the horse backwards mm-hmm. and lying down on the horse's rump. Right. And she just did it out seeking comfort. Mm-hmm. But the next day or two, the hospice nurse who came to check on her asked her what she was doing to get better. (laughs) And the only thing she'd done different was climb on that horse. And because she was a therapeutic riding instructor, she paid attention Mm -hmm. and she got some, a medical person to help her. And over the next uh, several weeks, she got out of hospice and over the next year, she got well. So she was presenting this and she was talking about the kind of horse, you know, what that horse would look like. And some just like mystic. Well, the only problem was that Mystic was considered the dominatrix of our barn. She was just so temperamental, you know. And when I got back, you know, there's like 40, 50 horses in this barn. And I said to a few people, like, yeah, I'm thinking about doing this. What do you think? Is it a different horse, Trish? Not not Mystic. She's the dominatrix. You can't you can't trust her with these people. And I'm I'm like, yeah, you're right, but let's just try it. And so um I, I brought her out with there were about four other people there. And I, I climbed up on her back, bareback. As soon as I got there, I, I started feeling really nervous because the fact is she wasn't all that trustworthy. Oh. <laughs> but, you know, I had learned to trust her. I'd, we'd worked it out, but I didn't use her for teaching. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, that, that, that's a whole different responsibility. And so anyway, I turned her, I, I went ahead and turned around on her. And I, that made me nervous too, because I hadn't done that since I was a teenager. And, uh, and I laid down on her rump. And, and you know what? She didn't move a muscle. She was completely fascinated with what I was doing. Mm. You know, she, she turned her head around, was looking at me, but she didn't move. And and I thought, well, that's pretty cool. You know, so I said, well, how about one or two of you do it? You know, because she knows me. Same thing. Completely mm. engaged. Not, not at all thinking about being disruptive. And that was enough for me. So three months later, we had our first client. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, um, and this was a, you know, pilot program. And so this was a woman who was actually in treatment. We don't do that anymore because they often just don't feel up to it, even though they think they will, but she had taken a break from between uh, chemotherapy and radiation. And, um, and so she, and she was afraid, a little afraid of horses actually, but she was, she just had a, a venturesome spirit. Okay. She, she was ready. To, she was game to try anything. Okay. And um, so, you know, in our very first session, after we, you know, circled up as women and, you know, connecting for a while, mm-hmm. she goes, the next thing, you know, after we 
meet one another was to go over and meet Mystic. And, he, and a simple activity was just to put your hand out and Mystic would touch the back of the hand. You know, it was a mutual greeting. Mm -hmm. But Mystic didn't stop with her. She kept, she walked right forward and she started nestling her rapidly and gently in her solar plexus area. Wow. And I was just like, oh my God, what is she doing? Mm -hmm. Is she going to bite her? I'd never seen her do anything like that. And um, she just kept it up. And, and I was amazed that this woman didn't step away. You know, because I knew she was kind of afraid of horses. And um, I mean, even I would have probably stepped away if she'd done that to me, mm -hmm. you know, because it was so uncharacteristic. And so anyway, just she just went on and on rapidly and gently nestling her. And so finally, I put my, you know, after 30, 45 seconds, I put my hand on her on Mystic's chest and she stepped back and, and, and this woman just had tears rolling down her face. And she said mm -hmm. that was where her tumor was. Oh. And that the reason that she hadn't stepped away was that she felt this amazing energy just pouring into her mm. and she just wanted more and more of it. Mm. And, and we were all in tears too. Mm. I mean, it was such a moving moment. Mm. And we realized then that we were on something way beyond mm -hmm. anything I had experienced before. Mm. And, and over the ensuing years, I mean, mystic, does something that's particularly perfect for each person wow. and i've learned to trust that mm -hmm. i've learned to um in, engage other horses in doing similar things uh i've learned that you know to provide a safe container that the horses perform miracles like that i mean this was a life-changing moment for that woman oh yeah she came four more sessions three more sessions and she talked about how Mystic had become a permanent companion in her imagination. Mm -hmm. That's an archetypal partner. Archetypal, okay? yeah. And that that uh, whenever she would feel sad, she, you know, this image of Mystic would come to her and she'd feel peaceful and joyful. She had also uh, experienced the death of one of her adult daughters in the previous year and she was still mourning that but she hadn't been able to fully mourn it you know express her grief mm -hmm. and she said that you know there was one day you know a couple of weeks into her time with us that you know this that the grief welled up in her and but she'd never been able to really experience it mm -hmm. and she said suddenly this image of mystic came to her and she had this huge release finally mm -hmm after all those months yeah. uh, and, and it was because of mystic's presence that yeah. allowed her to give vent to all of that grief mm -hmm. and that she felt so peaceful afterwards mm -hmm. and mystic was just with her all all along the way for years she just recently passed away after 10 years 10 oh, years wow. later i i wow. found out mm -hmm. but her her husband was telling me that mystic's mm -hmm. picture was on their refrigerator and they, and she'd come out and visit her and, and came to some of our other workshops, but she, you know, I hadn't seen her of course during the pandemic. So mm -hmm. I was really sorry to hear that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and it was a, and it was a flare up from her, some of the uh, cancer she'd had mm -hmm. 10 years ago, mm -hmm. but she, she had lived, lived a long and good life. And, uh, and her husband, you know, testified to, yeah. how mystic became an enduring presence in her life so that i mean that's i mean that's so, I, 
one of our first clients, but it's a typical story. It's a poignant uh, story, and uh, I wish we had time for more stories. <laughs> well, you've uh, heard the one of the best. One of the best. Oh, I'm, gl I'm glad I waited for it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, folks, I'm talking with Trish Brorsma, uh, Ashland, Oregon. Uh, you can find her on her website, uh, Trish Brorsma. That's B R O E R. SMA.com. Um, her book is uh, Writing into a Mythic Life. Uh, you're now doing uh, writing beyond working with uh, uh, women that have uh, been dealing with breast cancer. Um, you have a graphic design business still, Green Horse Graphics. So uh, uh, you're probably still uh, involved with so many uh, groups. I, I know when people read your book toward the end or even about you, you know, they'll find your connection to the, the millionth circle and Gene Shinoda Bolin and uh, different kinds of groups of folks that are, you know, it's very hopeful, uh, Trish, to, to see how there are these networks of people and animals, and horses in particular, that are, are still working on healing the world. <laughs> and, I really uh, see horses as really critical ambassadors for us mm -hmm. to restore a more vital connection with our natural world that is critical for our future. Well, know? we'll keep exploring that. And hopefully as one of our leaders in that area, we'll look to you for um, yeah. more guidance. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much, Dick, for the work you're doing to further uh, all these things as well. Well, it's such a pleasure. Uh, I get a thrill out of each of my guests and uh, you are no exception. Thank you, Trish <laughs> Broersma. And Thank friends, uh, remember, wherever you are, uh, that is your world. So please leave your world cleaner, more peaceful, and more loving than you found it. Because if it is to be, it is up to us to take care and Talk to you soon.